Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guests are Flavio Sfater and Ricardo Fort, who are pushing to start an English Premier League equivalent with all the top clubs in Brazilian soccer. We've had some great guests lately, including Matt Turner, Esmeralda Negron, and Susie Petricelli, and Christine Cupo. So check those out. But first, let's talk U.S. men's national team one, Canada nil, with my friend Chris Whittingham, who you can hear on Univision, Inter-Miami Radio, the Dan Lebetard Show, and the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing okay. Unconvinced by that U.S. performance, but they are through <laughs> to the knockout round as group winners, and... Now uh, await their next opponent, which will either be Costa Rica or Jamaica. What a what a highly uncomfortable game for the U.S. Uh, to end up winning the group. So we are recording this right after the game. So Mexico has not played yet. I expect Mexico will beat El Salvador, and that will mean that the U.S. and Mexico will be on opposite sides of the bracket. But if Canada had scored, and they had chances and gotten a point out of that game, they would have won the group. The U.S. would have likely been on the side of the bracket with Mexico. And on the good side of things, fastest goal in U.S. men's national team history, Shaq Moore off a good pass from Sebastian Legette, off a really good setup from Kellen Acosta. 20 seconds into the game, the U.S. takes the lead, and it ends up holding up, but... It also was very much Canada's advantage in this game. Canada had the possession advantage, 54 to 46%, shots 14 to 6, and shots on goal 3 to 1. And we saw an early goal in the Euro final from England. And it just seems like obviously the game state changes at that point. And also I think the mental state changes of the players that are in the game. Obviously you wish you could be pushing, pushing, pushing for two nil as quickly as possible. That didn't happen. And there were some moments in this game, first half and second half when the U S was under a lot of pressure. Yeah. And I really dislike when a back three becomes a back five. And that ultimately is what happened to this system. We really liked how it looked against Martinique. And we were kind of saying, it's Martinique, and so it's going to look like that. But the second that the wingbacks get pushed back, it's really difficult to keep the ball. And that was really the case for the last 60 minutes of the game. I really thought from kind of the half-hour point on, the U.S. really struggled to keep the ball. And it was because there was no passing options. I thought the two center forwards, Zardes and DK, did not combine very well together. Did not do very well to hold the ball up. The U.S. struggled in possession. They looked leggy and Look, they played, you know, three matches in a week in Kansas City in the middle of the summer. I'm not going to say that that's easy, but at the same time, there were just a lot of aspects of this performance going forward that were not terribly positive. I will say, in the aspect of suffering the game, right, where you're behind the ball and you can't keep it, the U.S. did pretty well in terms of not giving away clear goal-scoring chances, forcing, you know, if if Canada was going to score, it was going to be Tejan Buchanan from a long way out, who is a real threat. I thought was by far the standout in the day for Canada, but at the same time was having to do his work from long distances. So I thought the U.S. did well to keep Canada relatively calm in front of them, but a lot of aspects of this performance left a lot to be desired. How many times did we hear the word overrun to describe the U.S. midfield in this game? And that's a pretty strong word. It's also an accurate word to describe how things were going, especially in the second half. And... Yeah, you know, I realize there's some aspect of experimenting 
with the U.S. in this Gold Cup. That's that was always going to be the case once you decide not to bring your very best players. Which I actually support that decision. We've talked about that before, but not a great day for Gianluca Buzio. Uh, yeah. In particular, I, I don't want to totally single him out. I thought the midfield of Acosta, Buzio, and Legette, they were the guys getting overrun. And uh, I kept waiting and waiting for subs to address some of that. They finally came, but I thought it took a bit too long. And uh, and I, I wanted to see a guy like Eric Williamson. And I, and I realized that Williamson was very good against Martinique and and if you have a, gr- a really good performance against Martinique, you got to keep perspective that it's Martinique. But I still would have liked to see Eric Williamson in this game. We didn't end up seeing that. And I think there are some lessons coming out of this. If we are, you know, if, if the U.S. is experimenting, DK and Zardis, not great together. I actually think DK and, and Hoppy are better together. Hoppy's a better setup guy. Um, and then... That, that midfield, for me, not great, even when you, you know, keep in mind who you have on this roster. Yeah, it's kind of wild because the U.S., th- this squad is lacking in some fairly big areas, right? I don't think there's an obvious number 10 in this, in this group. I also don't think there's kind of an obvious covering, holding midfielder in this group. There aren't really a ton of wingers in this group. There are kind of a lot of, you know, quote, box-to-box midfielders who have some positional versatility, but I think... The U.S. really struggled to cover in the middle at times. I think Gianluca Busio, in really the two games, even against Martinique at times, he was kind of bullied off the ball on a couple occasions against, quote, grown men. And I think you kind of saw in this game as well, was struggling to track Samuel Piet, who's no one's idea of a bullying box-to-box midfielder. So I think Gianluca Busio has a fairly long way to go physically to you know, stay with his runners. A lot of that's just an endeavor thing. And some of it is a physical thing. And it'll be curious how going to Italy, you know, how he'll be able to survive. (laughs) Right. You know, like he's going to have to grow a lot in that aspect. He's obviously great on the ball, but in a game in which the U S was not able to dictate the game with the ball, Gianluca Busio all of a sudden becomes a passenger, and that's and that's difficult on him. You mentioned Eric Williamson. I thought the change that ended up working pretty well was bringing Matthew Hoppy on. It wasn't even just about mm-hmm. the two of them as a combination because they weren't really combining very much. It was just kind of the overall. He brought a dynamism to the game. I thought at times the U.S. looked really leggy. It looked as though their ability to cover space required so much effort that they just couldn't effortlessly cover space that they didn't have players who kind of filled out the gaps on the field. And then Hoppy comes on. It's like, oh, he's got that entire wing and can run around and cause problems Sam Vines I think was kind of miscast as a wing back I'm not really sure that like of between him and George Bellow there's really a, you know the, I think there's a big difference between playing that specific role so yeah I think there's a lot of elements of this performance where you're looking at personnel and going is this the best fit for everyone Eric Williamson in terms of making that 3-5-2 work it turned out was a pretty underrated aspect of it particularly when you're getting stuck behind the ball without the ball and you just need someone to be an outlet valve the strikers were really providing that I think Williamson in the middle with his dribbling with dribbling abilities ability to kind of ward off defenders and create space for himself was really needed in that middle. Yeah, it's interesting. Also, you mentioned Sam Vines, and I I totally agree. He didn't get forward a lot in this game, but I thought defensively he made some pretty important plays. That's fair. And and, uh, especially one toward the end of the first half that snuffed out a, a really good Canadian chance. Like, I came away feeling somewhat optimistic about Vines, despite not having a huge impact getting forward. Um, I thought James Sands, again, was very, very good, very poised. Um, and it seemed like he had 
something of a complicated tactical assignment from Burhalter and he executed. Yeah, I, I don't I don't love that though. In national team play. I get you're in a tournament, right? So you have some more time on the training ground, but I wonder if kind of the movement, hey Busio, you gotta take a step forward when we have the ball and then you gotta take a step back when we're defending, and then Sands, right. you take a step forward and then Pines and Robinson have kind of gotta, you know, squeeze in. You you started this idea with Walker Zimmerman, Donovan Pines gotta fit into it. I think it's a little bit over elaborate. I, I saw Matt Doyle of MLSsoccer.com called it a heat check from Greg Berhalter, and he's probably right. It's just one too many wrinkles in my view. I think national team football is about fairly simple instructions that a bunch of players can go out and execute, and you know game in and game out what you're going to do. I I didn't I don't like the you know you're one team in possession and one team out of it. Not just in terms of all right, you kind of flatten the lines, go to a four four two when you're defending, and then you kind of expand it out when you're attacking. Like full on, no, you're in a different role all of a sudden as a result of of this system change. I I, I thought that was a step too far from Burhalter. It's interesting because I, I think Burhalter picks guys who he thinks can handle or wants to see if they can handle these types of more complicated assignments. He's done that with Tyler Adams as well, and Adams is a guy who can handle it. I still think that James Sands is a guy, and we'll see how he does in the rest of this tournament, but so far, early on in his national team career, he strikes me as a guy that you can bring to World Cup qualifiers, and you may not start him or start him every game, but he can handle this so far. And I just think that's a very encouraging sign in what may end up being a standout of this tournament for the U.S. national team. Uh, tough situation. Walker Zimmerman wearing the captain's armband goes out early in this game with an injury. Um, Donovan Pines comes on. I thought Pines was a little shaky. <laughs> yeah, yeah looks look a little overawed, I think, by the moment a little bit especially almost giving away a goal to start the second half that Kyle Lahren should have done a lot better with for Canada. But, um, but then again, you know, like you look around at this team and, and like, yes, uh, not a game that you're going to highlight as like some great performance by the U S it wasn't, uh, but they get the three points. I am curious to see when they face, decent opposition and I think Canada qualifies as decent op- opposition at this point at least a lot better than Martinique you know that's what the U.S. is going to see quarterfinals semifinals final of this tournament based on what I've seen so far I I don't think this this U.S. team can beat a Mexico but I guess we'll see, you know, or maybe we will, maybe we won't. It was interesting when there was so much conversation about which part of the bracket Mexico are in. I think you're kind of ignoring, I think every team probably left has a chance to beat the U.S., I would think, right? I mean, if they played Qatar at some point in this tournament, I think that's a coin flip, right? Just based off what we've seen from them, their ability to get forward and create chances. Like, I don't I don't think this U.S. team, on the evidence that we've seen, is discernibly better than really any team left in the tournament. But the good news is that everyone is kind of the same. The only team that can take a step above is if Mexico hits their ceiling, which they, of course, are well capable of doing, but haven't really as yet in this tournament. There's some questions about the quality of their performance. So Mexico can be a level above, but this U.S. team, I'm not sure that they can just because... I'm not sure against, as you say, decent to good opposition. They can control the game in the manner that they do when they play Martinique, when they play Haiti. Like the, the the controlling of the ball, you saw it today. They just didn't have it against a Canada team that has some good talent. And so when you come across teams that have good talent, I thought Honduras last night were really entertaining in front of a great crowd in Houston. So when when they have this ability to 
use the ball to to beat their opposition, I'm not sure that the U.S. is going to be able to dominate teams that are not of a lesser level than them in quite that way. That's why I'm excited to see the knockout rounds with the U.S. I mean, this is there's a lot of unknowns moving forward here. There's also some injury unknowns. How serious is Zimmerman's, Zimmerman's situation? How serious is Daryl DK's shoulder situation did it look like that he dislocated his shoulder and they put it back in i don't know i mean they were, they were working on him i i don't i i'm always told in broadcasting school or, or you, know, you talk about it like you don't speculate <laughs> on injuries just, you, you don't know but yeah i mean when they're yes. kind of working on him and he's just kind of stood there like you know ah. they're like they're, they're they're pushing on his shoulder it's kind of what it looks like but he also was and you can tell he was running around favoring his right arm mm. which is the one that wasn't dislocated so yeah i mean there's certainly a chance and Holy hell, fair play to him if he was able to carry on after having his shoulder pop back in. But yeah, that definitely is a concern for the next game. Yeah, we're starting to see, I think, a little with DK, something that's always bugged me about soccer, which is if you foul a big guy, the big guy has a harder time to get the foul called sometimes because he's big. Yeah, you just got to fall over. That's ridiculous. (laughs) No, I agree. It, it's absurd. I mean, and l- we should probably also at least somewhat give an account of the penalty shouts that Canada probably could have had in this one as well. Very, very bizarre refereeing. Like, CONCACAF is bizarre in that its games feature either referees that allow massive amounts of contact in some moments, but not the tiniest <laughs> ones in others. It, it's just so bizarre, the, the contrast. But yeah, I mean, DK got a shove in the face from Richie Larea and had to had to show it in order to get any kind of sympathy and then probably in falling in order to get, you know, a measure of sympathy from the referee might have hurt himself falling. I thought it was interesting that on the play where Zimmerman goes out injured and that was a borderline call that the referee didn't even go to the screen to look at VAR on whether that was a penalty because that was certainly a shout uh, for Canada in that game and there were and there were other situations as well uh and so uh maybe the u.s lucked out a little bit there i also want to mention he like we didn't necessarily see his name being called out a lot today matt turner solid yeah in this tournament and i think that's also a good sign um for the u.s if he's gonna you know potentially put some pressure on uh on stefan and horvath uh, for the top goalkeeper spot. You know, and a couple of times when Turner needed to make a save, he did. And some of that is, you know, the hype that's come with Matt Turner, just, uh, you know, with how well he's played in MLS and how good some of his metrics are. But I do think when watching the U.S. as a last line of defense, which the goalkeeper is, he probably is the one that kind of leaves me feeling most assured, right? I do kind of think that it's going to take a moment of immense quality from an opposition in order to beat him, which, by the way, Buchanan almost summoned that that curling effort that just went around yeah. the post was incredible. But I, he comes up big coming out at Buchanan on the ball that kind of squeezed out of Kyle Lahren. So uh, Turner is a very assured goalkeeper. I just think, you know, with his feet, he's just not as good as Stefan. And I think Horvath is probably the best combination of the of the two major skill sets. So, but I, I do think that Turner, in terms of leaving you feeling like, all right, you've got this covered if you, if you let up a chance, like, the U.S. does well to limit obvious goal-scoring opportunities, but also Turner is there in case even decent ones come about. TGB Can's a player, by the way. Yeah. And, and we're seeing hearing of interest in him from European teams and uh, curious to see if, if New England's going to potentially sell him during this summer. Do they wait until the end of the season? Uh, he's been terrific in MLS as well. So uh, Canada, not just uh, Alfonso Davies, uh, 
you know, they don't have Jonathan David here either. Like Canada's a team that when they have all of their best players during World Cup qualifying, I think they've got a shot a shot to qualify. Are you not enjoying just this critical mass of North American based player? Like it feels like you know, even more, last summer was a moment, right? Because McKenney got a big move to Juve and Desk got a big move to Barcelona. But now, even if, even though they're not massive Champions League clubs, like the idea that Tejan Buchanan is getting rumored, it means that the New England Revolution are being scouted. And it kind of felt like, you know, Dallas got scouted, then Philly got scouted. Now it feels like the entire league is getting scouted if players from New England are being linked with moves abroad. And I really hope that owners kind of see this as a massive opportunity now and are, are seeing their investments in youth football in, you know, kind of repaid and like, okay, we can go again. And all of a sudden there's a market for our players. I was kind of listening to some conversations today about how the world market is kind of depressed right now because of how difficult economic situations are at big clubs due to COVID. And I wonder if, you know, an inefficiency can emerge. You can find good players in the United States. You can find good players in MLS. And I think this summer, just the sheer number of the Tessmans and the Busios and the Buchanans and the Vines and even Jonathan Gomez going to Spain from Louisville City. Like, there's all these guys that are being linked with moves. It's like every week, every day, there's a new rumor out there. That's just so cool to hear. It is, you know, and, and you know, this week there were uh, announcements. Tanner Tessman who's not even in this tournament, uh, you know, being sold from Dallas to Venezia. Uh, reports now from Italy, at least, uh, confirming the deal's done to send Buzio to Venezia as well. I'm, I'm really excited about that team. Uh, newly promoted, great location. Uh, I've never been to Venice. Have you? No, no, I've not been to Venice. And I, I might have to rectify that if, <laughs> if, if more Americans are all of a sudden going to start going there. <laughs> Interesting club. American ownership. A lot of Americans running the the business side of things. So that was a team that was just in, in Serious C not very long ago. Uh, promoted Serie A, just very, very impressive. So, so on the posters, on the posters for Paramount Plus's Serie A coverage is Juve one, Venezia two, or, or perhaps the reverse is Venezia now topping the leaderboard of clubs that'll be featured on Paramount this year. Shoot, man, it's it's an exciting time though, and there's there's one other story that I, I want to get in before we stop here, and that's uh, the other big news of the weekend, I would say which is Gabriel Heinze fired as coach of Atlanta United. I think he had 15 games total. The story came out midweek that Joseph Martinez, the star forward for Atlanta, had been training away from the team, clearly an issue between Heinze and, and Joseph Martinez. And if there was a battle here, Joseph just won. Yeah, and I mean, Josie Altador might have won one in Toronto as well. <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting how not only... So in Toronto, that was kind of its own dynamic. The 7-1 kind of made it a critical mass. I wouldn't say this performance against New England necessarily was that bad, but when you look at their run of results, when you look at the injuries that they've had, and now this Joseph Martinez thing, it is remarkable that a coach that came in with such a high pedigree like if you're looking towards coaches in South America that you were kind of tapping to succeed here it probably would have been Marcelo Gallardo of River Plate 1 and Heinze 2 like he was he came with such great pedigree it seemed like Atlanta 
had a one-coat search and it was him. And the fact that it hasn't worked after 14 games, when you do have to kind of give coaches like him that have such a particular system time, but then you have the political dynamics of the Joseph Martinez thing. And I also thought it was really interesting as well as a display of fan power because we saw on huge portions of that game against New England on national television, there's a sign that says Free Joseph that's on mm-hmm. that's on there. He's a, he's a hero there in Atlanta. He wants to be playing. The fans want to see him play. They're much more connected to Joseph Martinez and the arts of Gabriel Heinze, who's won two MLS matches in charge of this club. So it was really interesting to see the fans kind of display their displeasure in that way and in some ways have now left an Atlanta club that started off brilliantly. They couldn't make a wrong move, and now all of a sudden, they went big on Frank DeBoer. They went big on Gabriel Heinze. They've gone big in trying to replace Miguel Almiron, and so far, they've gone 0 for 3 on all of those things. So uh, real difficult times for Atlanta, and it's really cool to see that the fan base is at least voicing displeasure rather than just becoming apathetic, which I think was a fear in Atlanta if all of a sudden they stop winning. They're they're still as fiery and as passionate, but kind of going in the opposite direction of the kind of nonstop cheering that they've been able to do since they entered the league. And now there's some real decisions to make in Atlanta, not just, you know, at, at, techn- at you know, in terms of who's the head coach, but at technical level, you know, what, what ultimately is the path forward here? Yeah, I mean, I tweeted this. I don't think Atlanta United's been anywhere close to what they were since Tata Martino left. And obviously they miss Al Miron and you know, players, some of the signings had not been good enough, but Martino had a big role in recruitment as well. And, and they really do miss him. And from everything that Felipe Cardenas wrote in his story for The Athletic a little while back, uh, Tata Martino might have stuck around if he'd had a better relationship with the front office there. And so you're right, there are questions now on that front office of Atlanta United. Enough bad things have happened and enough bad decisions have been made that I think they're pro- it's fair to say there's a real question now. Is Carlos Bocanegra good enough for this job? And and maybe even some people wondering if Darren Eels is good enough for his job. I, those are real questions now, and I think they're legitimate questions to be asking. I'll be honest, though. I had questions about Frank DeBoer the second he was hired. When Gabriel Heinze was hired, I was like, that seems like a good hire. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. And, and also, I mean, we thought the same thing about uh, Guillermo Barroscalotto as well, going to the LA Galaxy. And, and we go back to the question about international coaches coming into MLS and like might going and finding a great American coach, like promoting, like going grabbing Robin Frazier from Colorado. He's done a great job with the Rapids, maybe with some resources and knowledge of the league. He can do something similar in Atlanta. Like, do you start looking for intra-league options, getting bumps up rather than keep trying to hit, you know, massive home run hires abroad? I think that might have to be Atlanta's next move here is go and buy, not buy, but, you know, spend a lot of money on a coach who might be under contract at a different club and say, hey, you've got you know, a, a blank check to work here and you're going to work with better players in a better environment. Do you want to work here? And I think that's probably what a lot of these clubs are going to do. LA made a massive jump going from Gre- from Guillermo Barlos-Scalotto to Greg Vanny. And you wonder kind of what the learning curve is going to be for coaches from abroad. And ultimately, is that a bad thing, right? We've talked about this before. Is it a bad thing that coaches who have enormous pedigree elsewhere can't seem to figure this league out, right? Is it because it's so particular and the the salary budget and all the issues make it difficult for coaches to operate? Or is it kind of a nice, distinctive character of our soccer that you kind of have to be embedded in our soccer in order to succeed from within it? Uh, You know, I I will always be supportive of American coaches and growing Mm -hmm. in the game. And I love what Jesse Marsh is doing in Europe as an American coach. I, 
ideally would like to see a mix of domestic and foreign coaches in MLS. There's so many teams in MLS now, 27. There's going to be 30 before long. There's enough teams to have a mix. And we just saw Charlotte hire the guy, the Spanish guy who had success with Independiente del Valle in, in South America. And I'm intrigued by that. Like, I, I, I think Patrick Vieira did pretty well when he came to MLS. I think we just saw Ernst Tanner extend his contract as the sporting director with Philadelphia Union. And there's a guy who came in from the outside and has done quite well, I think. So it's possible, but it, it's a great point you're making because I think the tide has sort of turned back in favor of the, the U.S.-based, the, the American coach in MLS more recently. It, it, you, know, you, you mentioned Greg Vanny. It's not lost on me that Heinz's last game was a loss to Bruce Arena, whose team is <laughs> leading the East and probably yeah. finds mirth in some of this stuff. Um, you know, like, I'm surprised that David Beckham, I, and I, I know you're going to take the fifth on this one for, for obvious reasons, but I'm surprised that David Beckham didn't want to hire Bruce Arena for Inter-Miami knowing very well, having won championships in this league with Bruce Arena when they were with the LA Galaxy, and Beckham hires Phil Neville instead. Um, I, I, I think we're seeing a, a trend back toward American coaches in MLS, and, and we'll see where it goes from here. But um, And in some respects, it's not even just about you know being American. It's about being embedded in the game here, right? So like Adrian mm-hmm. Heath is English, but he's been here for so long that he has he's had some successful right. Minnesota teams. I actually think probably the best example of this to take nationality out of it is Wilfred Nancy, who's the manager of Montreal. They won again in what was a bonkers game of 5-4 <laughs> at the weekend against Cincinnati. And Montreal are in the top five of the Eastern Conference yep. when... You know, they probably, I think, are probably doing better than they would have under Thierry Henry, right? Yeah. Because, you know, Wilfried Nancy's been coaching here for a long time. He knows the league. He knows how it works. And is getting a lot out of a group of players that aren't really that special, right? Like, you look at their roster, that's a, that's a non-playoff team if you look at names on a sheet. And yet, he knows exactly how to get this team to play in this league. And I kind of wonder if he's due, not for a promotion, but maybe a bigger club wants to go and hire Wilfried Nancy because he's succeeding at a club like Montreal. In other leagues, you have clubs that, you know, you have coaches that succeed at a certain level, and then they get interest to make a jump up to a higher level. Why shouldn't that happen in MLS? And I think that's probably the next step here. It is interesting because, yeah, are we eventually going to see competition between within MLS to hire coaches away from other teams. It, it's happened occasionally over the years, but not that often. And assistants and getting promoted record, as well. Assistants get yeah. like Gonzalo Pineda, who's the assistant in Seattle, has been linked with a few jobs. If I were, if I were you know, a coach in the, or if I were a team looking for a coach, I'd probably be looking towards more MLS-based assistants, which doesn't make for a great headline, but it probably might make for more success. I laughed at a tweet from Doug Roberson, uh, the... Atlanta uh, Journal-Constitution reporter who, set, who cited a source this afternoon that Frank DeBoer would be willing to come back to Atlanta United. <laughs> <laughs> to which we say... <laughs> Someone's going to have to make that call first, Frank. Oh, God. Um, well, good stuff, my friend. Thanks, as always, for joining me. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Flavio Fader and Ricardo Fort. Our guests now are seeking to start a new English Premier League equivalent with the top soccer clubs in Brazil. 
Flavio Sveter is a Brazilian lawyer and professor who has served as a member of FIFA's Ethics Committee and as president of Brazil's highest body of sport justice. Ricardo Fort, also Brazilian by birth, is the founder of Sport by Fort Consulting and, among other things, the former head of global sponsorships for Coca-Cola and Visa. Flavio and Ricardo, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Good to speak with you. There's a lot to talk about here, guys. We've seen a big article in the New York Times last week about this idea that all the top Brazilian soccer clubs would do what the English Premier League did in the early 1990s and form their own Premier League equivalent that would be managed and run by the clubs, not by the Brazilian Soccer Federation, the CBF, as is currently the case. And I'm wondering why, in your opinion, would this be a good idea? Yeah, let me, me put you in perspective how it began. I'm a lawyer and I used to work for 16 years in the Brazilian uh, disciplinary court for football, the highest body, as you said. Uh, and 2018, I decided to study the, the business side of football because in Brazil, we don't have really like business in football. So I came to New York, to NYU to take a master degree. And I started to study the, the, the leagues like here in the US, also the, the football leagues, the international football leagues. And a friend of mine uh, gave me a book uh, to, to read, which tells the history of the, the beginning of the Premier League, a book called The Club, uh, written by Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg. And when I read that book, I realized that we could do something similar in Brazil. So we start a think tank. Uh, first, me and my friend who gave me the book, Lawrence McGrath, and we start to discuss how we can create that. And the idea, the original idea, and, the, and still the same idea is, yes, we can create a league in order to improve Brazilian football. But as the clubs in Brazil uh, is really high in debit, so we need to like create this league associated with an investment which will be used for uh, uh, restructure the debts of the clubs. So we start this think tank and we start to talk with a lot of stakeholders in Brazil. And we realize that it's possible, it could be possible, but in order to, to raise this money, we should have the best team possible. So Lawrence uh, had a really, really wonderful connection and network. And his first boss was Charlie Stilitano. So he called Charlie and invited Charlie for this project. And Charlie loved the project. And Charlie brought with uh, uh, in the project uh, Chris Unger which is the, the former head of World Cup in FIFA, and also Scott Scultemino, who used to, to work in, in ESPN for 27 years. And after that, they invited uh, Rick Perry as an advisor. And we had this group uh, working on the project and talking with a lot of stakeholders in Brazil, with president of clubs in Brazil, with global, the main uh, uh, right holders in Brazil. And we, after that, Ricardo left Coca-Cola and we invited Ricardo as a sponsorship specialist because we, we understand that we need like different uh, speci specialists in, in this project. So we have uh, Ricardo as a sponsorship. We, we have like Chris as a, as a uh, event and protocol organizer. Uh, we have uh, uh, Scott as a media guy. So we have many different, uh, 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 how can I say, skills in the project. And we getting further, and during this process, the clubs in Brazil 
uh, decided, and, and, and I didn't tell you, I bought the rights for the book and I published in Brazil the book that nice. was, the, the, yeah, in order to create like the environment and the, the and people and the knowledge that it's possible to make something similar in Brazil. And during this process, the clubs decided to create their own league, and now they are they are deciding which league they want, and we are helping them like to 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 show what we believe is the best way to create the best league and in order to create the, 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 the environment but to, to raise this money and, and put this money in Brazilian football. And Ricardo, what attracted you to being part of this project? Well, many, many things. So this is, this is not something that happens every day in your own country. Um, luckily, my friends from England, Spain, Italy, Germany, they, they, they have lived through it and they were successful in launching their, their domestic leagues the way they exist today. So it's, it's simple to look at the, the Premier League and think it was, no, has always been like that. No, it was a mess in the 80s, early 90s. So the idea of, of being involved with a movement like that that can transform uh, football in Brazil is is very is very appealing. Um, you know, we 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 love we love uh, Brazil. We love uh, football in Brazil, and we want it to be the best it can be. And today, uh, it isn't, and it hasn't been for a long time. So I think that this realization from the football ecosystem in Brazil, all the industry, all the players, uh, you know, from clubs to the federation to TV, everybody uh, understands that football can be better. And it's, uh, it's not an easy transformational process as it wasn't in England, um, but it's possible. So the idea of, of getting such a big challenge and, and, and turning that into reality and the potential impact it can have in, in Brazil as a country and as in a, for all the football lovers there, uh, it's, uh, you know, you, you just cannot say no to a project like that. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned some of the names, Flavio, who are involved in this this project, including Charlie Stilitano, who's been on this podcast before. For listeners who who aren't aware, Charlie ran the preseason U.S. games for the top European clubs uh, for many years, uh, a, a well-known soccer executive. Uh, Scott Guglielmino, you said 27 years at ESPN. Uh, he was one of their ranking executives. Uh, you know, there's a lot of... of really impressive names who are involved with this, including you two. Um, and also, from what I've been reading here, you have up to $1 billion in backing, potentially, from U.S. private equity. Is that is that a certainty? Is that a possibility? Like, And, and how would that help the project? I, I think it's, uh, um, it's, it's conditional to making the changes that we believe are necessary. I don't think there is a lack of money to invest in football. And uh, assuming all the changes that we are, you know, we are pushing for and working with the clubs to, you know, to, to make it happen, if they actually happen, um, the money is not going to be a problem by, by no means because there are plenty of, of uh, financial institutions in the U.S., uh, in Brazil, in Europe, that understand that uh, a a property, an asset like the Brazilian National League has a value that can easily go above this, uh, these numbers. But having said that, I mean, investors are going to look at who are the people involved in the project? Are they reliable? Are they you know, serious about this? 
you know, what, are, what is the governance that you're putting in place to make sure that my money is protected? So that's also very, very important. Uh, and, you know, the structure of the project in general. So assuming all the pieces fall into place, uh, you know, the, the money is going to be, uh, I think, probably the, the easiest part of, of the project. So uh, we, have, we have been engaging with uh, many different investment fir firms. Uh, we are confident that we are going to, to be able to, you know, to choose the best partner for the project if we can deliver in our promises working with the clubs. Our financial partners always say, and all of them say the same, this is the, the highest opportunity to invest in sports. So Brazil is like the, 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 the country that most export players forever. And players like go to play abroad with 18 years old. So if you like put some money in Brazil football, Brazilian football in order to restructure the, the, their debits, the clubs could retain the talent and it will increase a lot the, the, the product and it will increase the value of the revenues like broadcast internationally and, and also domestic. So we are not like afraid about money. We are afraid about like creating the best structure and the best governance in order to, to put the money in, in Brazilian football. So just recently we've seen all the top division Brazilian clubs deliver a letter to the Brazilian Federation expressing the desire to do this uh, and, and have an equivalent of the English Premier League that is run by the clubs, not by the Federation. How are you going to get the Federation, the CBF, to agree to this? And, and from what I gather, the politics in Brazilian soccer can be challenging since the multiple state federations have a lot of voting power in the federation there. And if you need to, would you potentially do this without the federation's blessing? Actually, we believe they will support the project. The, the Sao Paulo Federation is the, the biggest federation in Brazil, is already supporting the project. The Rio de Janeiro Federation is already supporting the project. And what we are doing is like trying to improve the, the football environment in Brazil. So uh, they, they, they have to support that, you know, it's for the best, for, it's for the, the good of football. So uh, we are not uh, really concerned about that as we are trying to create a, a product and, 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 uh, and a model that we're going to be good for the clubs and also for the whole environment. We're thinking about, and Ricardo can explain a little bit better, uh, we're thinking about like uh, as, uh, some money for women's football, we're thinking about money for other uh, series. So uh, it's a project for the whole football in Brazil. And for, for that reason, probably CBF we're going to support. We don't know. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's it's important to uh, to to highlight, Grant, that the uh, th this is a process that is happening between clubs, federations, and the National Football Association, right, CBF. Uh, that we, as a, as a group, we are not involved in, in any of that. So uh, they are they are discussing now. I mean, as in any other country, football is a, a very political environment, and in Brazil is no no different. There are a lot of different interests um, to. Uh, to you know, to pull and push for for different directions, but I think that uh, one of the one of the positive things about what's happening in Brazil right now is that uh, the clubs are united for the first time in in decades. It it hasn't happened. Uh, the, the 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 closest that we've been to where we are today happened in 1987 
when the uh, 13 clubs uh, grouped and to start a, a, a breakaway kind of a league. Uh, but it was, it was very different. Uh, now you have uh, 40 clubs, the, the 20 top clubs, the, the 20 clubs of the first division, the 20 clubs of the second divisions. Brazil, now for your, for your listeners, we have uh, four different uh, divisions in, 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 in nationally. And then you know, a bunch of uh, state leagues, which are very important as well. So in the, in the football industry in Brazil, in football ecosystem in Brazil, uh, every decision at the national level is voted by all the 27 federations, state federations, and uh, all clubs from first and second divisions, they have different weights. So a decision like that is going to be very much discussed and debated. But we believe that because all the things that are happening today in, in football and because uh, I think uh, CBF, the, the Football Association, they understand that this is what the clubs really want to do. We believe that there's going to be a movement towards approving this and it's, it's going to move into you know, uh, operationalizing and making the league happen at some point. So the, the, the formalities of the approval, we believe that they will come to terms and they will figure out a way uh, when they realize that everybody can benefit from, from that. And in fairness, just a side note here, uh, the CBF, they do a very good job in managing the national team. The Brazilian national team, they operate very well. They are very well staffed. Uh, they, you know, they have great sponsors. So they do a fantastic job there. The clubs feel that they should have something similar. And by focusing on the league, they can have, you know, they can achieve the same results as CBF achieved for the national team. So that's, that's a whole, the whole purpose. And um, hopefully all of them will win uh, uh, one way or the other through this process, uh, either by focusing or by having more resources or more independence, whatever they are looking for. And I guess one question I have from reading the New York Times story is, is your group that you guys are part of, are you the only group or are there multiple groups that are vying to represent the Brazilian clubs? Actually, we are the only group that present a proposal for investment. The other groups are looking for uh, some service. They are looking for be higher for the league uh, in order to help them to structure the league. Our proposal is a little bit different. We want to invest in Brazilian football. Uh, and in order to invest in Brazilian football, we need to like uh, uh, help the clubs and work together with the clubs to create the best structure that you're gonna uh, give secure for the investor and also for the, for the clubs. Uh, so that's our proposal. So it's kind of different than the other proposal that actually there was the KPMG present a proposal like a service for the clubs and also McKinsey present uh, also a, a service for the clubs. And yeah. when do you expect a decision to be made on which group will represent the clubs? Well, the clubs are now, they, they, are, uh, they form a couple of different committees to discuss different aspects of the project. Um, uh, initially, they, they, they informed us that they would take three months to think about it. We, we believe that you know, it, it will happen sooner than that because uh, there's also the pressure of time. If they want to start the league next year, uh, they cannot afford to spend three months three months deliberating on uh, who's going to work with them, but I, but I think that you know just building on what Flavio uh, said, you know you have you know very reputable organizations companies trying to be part of this process, and you know with, with their different skills, you know we may end up in a position where you know we are all collaborating, and uh, we have the benefit 
we have had the benefit of being discussing this for so long that by the time the clubs were ready to talk about it, we have thought through you know, the entire process. We have thought through calendar. We have multiple versions of you know how the calendar uh, can be optimized. We have multiple versions of how the revenues uh, can be uh, split. We have multiple versions of you know how the organization should be structured. So uh, all of that was so they were impressed with the fact that we have done our homework. Um, uh, you know, so thoroughly just because you know, we've been doing this for longer than everybody else. And we have people that as the names that, 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 that you, that you mentioned, that Flavio mentioned, uh, that have done this before in other places. So it was, it was a competitive advantage for us. So we were hoping that they would, they would look at our proposal and say, yeah, yeah, this guys can do, can do the, the job better than everybody else. And when you look at the television perspective, Globo is such a big channel in Brazil, are they on board like or are there other potential groups in Brazil that that you know could be could be televising the league or I know there are existing contracts I I've seen some concerns complaints that Globo's popular soap operas mean that Brazilian league games start really late some nights and that's not optimal for the league. Where are you on the television front with all of this and the potential for for international right sales as well. Global uh, holds the, the majority of the, the contracts today until 24, and Global for sure will support the project. Global uh, is a really is the, the biggest part a, a partner for Brazilian football forever, and uh, I, I do believe that Global. We spoke with Global a lot, and we spoke with all stakeholders. And global will support the project, but it, because the project's for good, you know. So uh, even the calendar, the the the, the change in calendar, in order to increase the revenue for the clubs, global will support. We don't, and, and there is other uh, also players in Brazil, the other other uh, entrants like uh, Amazon and Netflix and 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 Disney. So there is space for everybody, but I'm sure uh, global will support the project. I think it just you know it's uh, maybe helpful to, to to just to to qualify what the role of global in Brazil. So unlike unlike in in the United States where you have you know endless endless options uh, in Brazil, global has dominated uh, broadcasting and particularly football uh, soccer broadcasting for now for decades now. Um, and as as the number one network by a very large margin. They are capable to when they put their efforts and their their money and their capabilities to do something. They do it really well. So the quality of production is great, and and they have really developed uh, Brazilian soccer and what it is today. Uh, they have been broadcasting matches for decades, and the quality is great. They they promoted teams. So anything in the future of soccer in Brazil cannot exist without Global because they they are by by far the most involved. Uh, experienced partner in the broadcasting side. There are others, and we we don't know how you know, exactly which role each of them are going to play in the future. But uh, if for this to be successful, Global has to be an important player. Uh, having said that, the world of broadcasting today with you know, all the OTT options and all the new entrants uh, that are going to Latin America and into Brazil, like you know, Disney Plus or Amazon with Prime and so on and so forth, these are all great options. The Zone is another one. So when you think about the the, the overall uh, world of broadcasting today, it's unlikely that the future we are going to have an exclusive partner 
across all the different platforms because that's just not realistic in, in today's world. So we believe that, uh, yes, global must have a very uh, strong participation and in some specific uh, uh, ways of distributing content, there will be other uh, local and international companies. Ricardo, you had mentioned sort of the history back in 1987. There was a, an idea that had some similarities to, to yours uh, with these 13 clubs, except in that case, the Federation didn't really recognize the, the championship that was formed. And, and there was some issue with, as I read, unity of the clubs themselves. Like, do you feel confident that the unity of the clubs in this project will will be there. I do, I do. And, and um, I'm, I'm saying this based on the conversations that I had with uh, many club presidents. The level of maturity today in club management is much higher than it was, you know, 30 odd years ago. So most of the presidents of the clubs, they look at, the, at, at football as a passion, but also as a business. And they understand that un unless you build, you, you grow the entire pie, your, your slice is never going to grow. So they have this, uh, this feeling and, and this is happening at the, the very top. So if you talk to the, uh, the, the number one club in Brazil in revenues, uh, Flamengo, and you talk someone in the middle or someone at the bottom, all of them look at this and they understand that I'm not, I mean, growing another 1% of my revenues is stealing from another club is not the solution. So they need to do it. So I think that, that they achieve the level of maturity and understanding it, even if they're still fierce competitors and, and they poke each other all the time, every Monday after the Sunday match, if they won or, uh, or not, uh, they understand they have to do this together. Um, that doesn't mean that there are not detractors and people pushing for the status quo. To remain, uh, there is there will be people like that, and there are people like that in the in the among the club presidents, in the press, with the fans, and so that's why you know the challenge is so is so big. We have to bring everybody and convince everybody across all these multiple constituents that that's the direction we should we should all go. One question I've always had: it's sort of complicated to explain the calendar for Brazilian club competitions to people. Like there's the, the National League, which takes place for part of the year, and then there's these state tournaments, which are sort of, as I understand it, a legacy of for decades that are that are different, that have, you know, that one's a hard one for me to explain to people in, in the U.S. sometimes. How would the calendar work for what you're proposing? Would, like, would... Because you know, we have this discussion about Major League Soccer here in the United States. Should it be on a European calendar? Should it be what it currently is, which is different where we play in the summer? Um, you know, How would the calendar look for Brazilian club soccer under your project? And would the state tournaments go away? That's, that's one of the uh, main points to be adjusted. We had like Chris Unger working a lot in this topic. And he made like different uh, uh, calendars uh, in order to increase the revenue, in order to adjust a little bit the calendar, uh, special to, to, to provide the Brazilian clubs 
uh, a way to like uh, develop their brand internationally. So we have a break in the middle of the year. Ricardo participate a lot in this discussion, so he has a better knowledge in, in, about calendar than than me. But we create a, 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 a good opportunity for the clubs changing a little bit the calendar uh, in order to 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 create a better uh, um, calendar, and, and and the clubs could like stop when the, the international competitions happen today, they played similar, simultaneously. It's something that doesn't make any sense, but he can't work on that. He probably knows a little bit more than me. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, calendar is a, is a, is a very sensitive area of discussion with the clubs, but and there are, there are a few, few points here. I think that if you just step back and look at calendars in Brazil, it's not as complicated as most people think. Uh, if, you, if you just use uh, uh, European uh, leagues as a reference, you have one national league, which is called Campeonato Brasileiro. And then you have the equivalent of England's FA Cup, which is a knockout uh, a tournament with clubs from all different divisions. They play uh, on, a, on a funnel knockout uh, until there is a champion. So these are the two main competitions that happen in Brazil at, at a national level. Um, and because of the, the size of the country, You have, you know, uh, uh, division one, two, three, four. But, you know, let's just focus on the first on the first division. Uh, they play these two tournaments. Then, similar to, similarly to Europe, you have a two confederation um, South American uh, tournament, which is uh, Copa Libertadores and Copa Sudamericana, which is the equivalent of the UEFA Champions League and uh, the uh, Europa Cup. So these are the, the, the I think that the, the different animal that exists in, exists in Brazil are the state championships, which happens at the beginning of the year. And that's a uh, you know, uh, you know, historical tradition that has happened for, uh, for forever. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a different animal that has to be uh, taken care of. It's, it's important, it's important for the federation, it's important for a lot of clubs. Uh, so you have, to, you have to take care of that too. So when you look at all of that, Uh, you start thinking about uh, plotting dates in on weekends and weekdays for for a calendar. It can become very messy. So I think in general terms, what we're trying to do is to is to say the 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 national league is the most important tournament in Brazil, and everything else will work around the national league. Uh, so uh, we are moving most of the matches to weekends. Today they happen. They uh, they play uh, twice a week. They play midweek and weekends. Uh, the national league, so we are we're moving all the matches to the weekends, allowing the midweek dates to to be used by um, South American tournaments, Libertadores, and so on and so forth. Uh, we are also creating a window in the middle of the year for and for FIFA dates, so that the league doesn't stop. The, the, the league stops when their the national team is playing. And then just to give an example. Uh, in Europe, all the leagues are, you know, are, are, are on hold until the, the new season starts. Uh, and the uh, Euro was happening during that window, during that break. In Brazil, the Brazil national team was playing at the same day as the National League was playing. So you have multiple matches at the same day. Nobody's paying attention in any of them. Uh, so uh, these are the kind of changes that we are doing. So increasing the, the, the number of weeks for the, for the National League making matches happen mostly on weekends uh, and stopping for FIFA and, you know, for FIFA dates. Uh, if we manage to do it, uh, we believe there is a, there is a way to, 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 to fix everything there. And then one last piece of the puzzle here is just um, matching the European calendar, which is something really hard for many reasons. First, 
South Hemisphere, summer, winter is, is opposite, of course. Uh, and then you cannot forget that players and you know, team and clubs, they are all you know, real people that have kids in school and they have you know, summer breaks. And so you have to respect that as well. So uh, uh, matching the European calendar is going to be, uh, is, is not part of our conversation right now. I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The United States League, Major League Soccer, and, and even the Mexican League have playoffs at the end of the, the season to determine a champion. And obviously that is similar to the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball. Is that just not going to happen in Brazil or did you act, have you actually entertained the possibility of that? I believe that's a club decision. We, we, the, our, our role is to uh, uh, provide them with the best information, with the best like uh, studies that shows if you do this, this can impact your revenue like in, in that way. So that's our role. But the clubs have to decide that, you know, uh, could be, used to be, uh, and they changed that. And today there is something similar to European competitions, but maybe it could be a change. But the clubs have to decide that. Is women's soccer for Brazilian clubs part of your plan or the potential for investment in, in women's club soccer? Uh, yes, uh, and, and this, is, um, this is a lesson that the European Super League learned the hard way uh, for ignoring women's football. In our case, we do have uh, a, a mechanism in the funding that will allow us to invest in women's football as well, women's soccer as well, to make sure that we bring them uh, you know, together in this movement of growth so that eventually the, the women's uh, league in Brazil has the commercial appeal nationally and internationally uh, as we, have, we are achieving now here in the United States and, and, and in Europe as well. How big could this project get? Are, are your aspirations to try to compete on the same economic level with maybe the French League or, or with even bigger European leagues at some point? Why not? We have the, like, the best players in the world we have like football is something that is internationally. If we create like a good product, we believe that in 10 years we can be like uh, one of the three top leagues in the world. That's my thought. Maybe Ricardo had another thought, but I believe. Well, yeah, I don't, we I don't, do I don't think there is any reason uh, for not being able to be among the top, top three leagues in the world. I mean, it, it does, it doesn't make a lot of sense other than you know, good management and good product that a, you know, the French league, Italian league, uh, the German league are you know, three, four, five times bigger in revenues than what the Brazilian league is today. Uh, so it's possible to, you know, to, you know, to make improvements and grow the league. We, we believe our estimates are if we do everything that we think we should do, in the next 10 years, uh, you are going to multiply revenues by five and you, you, the Brazilian league can, can be one of the, the top, top three uh, in, in the world. The, the venues are very good. I mean, there's a lot of uh, venues that were built for the, the FIFA World Cup in 2014. So the quality of, of Stadia is, is very good. Uh, we have an issue with you know, the quality of you know, players leaving too, you know, too early in their careers to Europe. So hopefully we address that. And then, you know, all the other things on the infrastructure side for you know, management and governance, as we said before. 
if if we do everything the right way, it can it can happen, and there is there is we are the only barriers to make it happen uh, in the next decade. Flavio Sveter is a Brazilian lawyer and professor who has served as a member of FIFA's Ethics Committee and president of Brazil's highest body of sport justice. Ricardo Fort is the founder of Sport by Fort Consulting and the former head of global partnerships for Coca-Cola and Visa. Flavio and Ricardo, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Flavio Sfeder and Ricardo Fort, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.